Welcome to the Innovation and Technology Management Seminar Series hosted by the Engineering Management Program in the Pratt School of Engineering at Duke University. My name is Jeff Glass and I'm the Faculty Director for the Engineering Management Program. The purpose of our seminar series is to introduce engineers and scientists to various business and management concepts that they will find useful throughout their careers. Speakers represent a diverse array of industries from finance and information technology to materials processing and biotechnology. If you'd like to learn more about the Engineering Management Program at Duke, including these podcasts and any associated audiovisual materials that are sometimes available, please visit our website at memp.duke.edu. Thanks for your interest in our series, and please do not hesitate to contact us with suggestions or questions. We're very fortunate to have Mr. John Glushik with us today for our seminar. John is a general partner with InterSouth, one of the nation's most active and experienced early-stage venture capital firms. As one of the largest funds in the Southeast, InterSouth has invested in more than 80 private companies over the last 20 years. They focused on life sciences and information technology sectors. At InterSouth, John works with the firm's information technology portfolio, identifying investment opportunities, evaluating technology, and advising company management through the startup, growth, and exit processes. He's led multiple venture financing and has managed a number of successful liquidity events. He currently serves on the boards of six InterSouth companies in industries ranging from semiconductors to network infrastructure. John has a background in engineering and consulting within the telecommunications and aerospace industries, and his previous experience includes strategic market consulting at Booz Allen & Hamilton, telecommunications satellite engineering, and marketing at General Electric. He's an active member of the Council for Entrepreneurial Development, serving on their board of directors and their executive committee. Perhaps most importantly, John holds a BS in mechanical engineering and material science from Duke University. He also has an MS from MIT and an MBA from the Kellogg School. So, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm going to spend some time today trying to describe to you what venture capitalists do every day, and uh, because it's a little bit, a little bit of a black box, uh, and every firm does it differently. Uh, but we, we, as as an, in, in the normal course of business every day, we evaluate technology opportunities as as, as part of our job. Uh, we are tasked with managing um, hundreds of millions of dollars of other people's money. And, and putting that money in a responsible way into technology companies, whether they be life science or information technology companies. So, uh, from a, in, the, in the financial industry, we you know we kind of sit between the entrepreneur and the big institutional investors, and our job is to find good companies, invest in those companies, hopefully get those help those companies grow, get them to some kind of exit or liquidity event, and return that money to the investors. So it's a pretty simple equation. Uh, but for for InterSouth in particular, and for other early stage venture funds, we have to find opportunities in real early stage companies, private companies that have, in some cases, just been started that don't even have a product yet, but just have an idea. And we have to try to figure out, is this something that's worth investing in and you know, obviously worth, worth our time to help them grow. Um, so you heard a little bit about my background. Feel free to ask me any questions as we go through this. Uh, I'd rather do questions during um, the discussion as opposed to the end. Uh, you can ask me any question you want about me or InterSouth or the industry. I'm going to try to give you a sense of what I do as part of my day. My day is, is, is different every day. Uh, a lot of it is managing existing investments. So I'm on six boards now and I have been on other boards. And so part of my job is helping an, an, an existing portfolio company be successful. And there are, there are ways in which I can help. I don't, I don't run the companies, but I can help the CEOs and their teams help recruit people, help raise capital, help make some business development contacts with people that I know in, the, in the, the industries that they're in. So part of it is portfolio management. Part of it is firm management because I am part of a small organization and there's the typical things about managing an organization that I'm part of. And then the third thing is finding new deals, and that's what we'll talk a little about today. So first, just a quick overview on InterSouth. Uh, I think um, this was already outlined, but we did close on our seventh fund last year. Uh, so we have a total of $775 million under management. Uh, we are the largest venture fund uh, in North Carolina, uh, and, the, and we're the oldest. We were started back in 1985. That's where we're on, we're on Fund 7. Venture funds generally get raised every few years. So back in 1986, we closed on our first fund, which was an $8, an $8 million fund, uh, which back then was, was uh, pretty, actually a pretty good-sized fund. And we've grown steadily over the years. So we're on Fund 7 now. We're one of the, one of the larger early-stage investors in the Southeast. On a national scale, we're about average. Uh, you know, 
kind of 2 to 250 is where the center of gravity is for most venture funds uh, nationwide, but you see most of the bigger funds concentrated in Boston and Silicon Valley. And we do a lot of different types of investments. We're, more, we're mostly geographically focused. We, we like to invest in the southeast region of the U.S. We think it's a, a region that has a lot of good technology and a lot of good technologists. We think it's underserved by venture capital. Uh, we have re relatively little competition. So we focus geographically as opposed to uh, uh, on a, te a particular technology sector. So we have a life science team, as you can see, that invests in a, a variety of different life science technology sectors. And I, sorry, you probably can't see the, some of the logos there, but those are the logos of our currently active portfolio companies in each of those subsectors. So you see a wide variety of subsectors within both life science and IT. My background is in software engineering and telecommunications, but don't ask me to write code right now because, you know, last time I did it was 10 years ago, and I, I'm sure I'd screw it up. But the background is just helpful in terms of understanding the vocabulary of the business plans that I read, and, being, and it helps me communicate with, with the entrepreneurs that I'm interacting with to understand what they're doing. Okay. So that's generally what, what we do. So let me just do, I'm going to cover some real basic things about venture capital so you can understand during the decision-making process when we're looking at a company, kind of what we have in the back of our minds. So I mentioned we were responsible for taking a lot of money and putting it into startup companies. There are some general metrics that, that we track to kind of um, make sure we're hitting our goals. And one of the things we always look at is the historical returns in venture capital and make sure that we're kind of tracking to the expectations that this has set with our customers, our investors. If you look over the last 20 years, so that the, 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 the best, best place to look on this chart is the upper right corner. Over the last 20 years, early stage VC has returned over 20% on a net, net, net return basis to, to our customers, which we, we call limited partners. Okay? So the question is, is, is that a good return? Is, is, does, would you consider that a good return? Well, it's, a, it's only a good return if it beats other asset classes by a significant amount because venture capital is a high risk asset class, it tends to fluctuate much more significantly than most other asset classes. So as a general benchmark, we want to make sure that we're always at least 5% above the S&P. And you, as you can see, historically, we almost always are in the long term, certainly. And in the short term, it'll go up and down. So we think it's a good asset class. Historically, it's performed very well. Even relative to later stage VC, you can see if you're, if you're willing to let your money be put to work over a long period of time and not worry about looking at the balance sheet and seeing it going up, up and down every day, then it's a good, uh, good long-term return. So we, we see people like pension funds, big endowments, universities give us money, and they really don't want to see it for their 10 years, but they want to see a lot more coming back. So this is kind of the general kind of hurdle that we're looking at. So again, this is all background so you can understand what we're going through when we look at a particular deal. If you, if you, take, if you take that number 20% and you think about getting to 20% across a portfolio, not every portfolio company is going to work out. With startup companies, many of them don't work out at all, and some of them you only get partial capital back. We generally like to set this bar, which is at least 40% return on a per-company basis, because if you filter out the ones that don't work, the ones that are zeros or ones or twos, then hopefully that will average down to 20. And this, this chart gives you a sense of how long, how, how the, the, the amount of time that we're in a deal in terms of the years before they exit is related to the multiple we have to make on our invested capital. So, for example, a good, good average for a venture-backed company would be exiting in five years. Okay, if we invest in a company and five years later exit from that company, in order to get a 43% return, we need a 6x on our, on our investment. Six times our initial investment. Okay? So that's a pretty high bar that we're setting for ourselves when we look at a particular deal to see kind of what we think it can become. If everything works out, how big can it be? And what, end up what ends up happening is we get a wide spectrum of outcomes. So here's just a hypothetical 10-company portfolio that we invest in. We, let's say we put a million dollars into each company. This is kind of typically what happens. And the, two, the, the home runs, the top two, are really what determine your returns. Those are the ones we're shooting for. And every deal that we look at, every entrepreneur that we talk to, we're thinking, can they be one of those top two, deal, two deals? If there isn't a chance that they, they can be one of those top, top two deals, we're not going to be interested. Because in order to hit two home runs, you've got to swing hard ten times. And sometimes you get some zeros, 
and sometimes you get some threes or fours or fives, but we need to shoot for those top returns. And over on the right, you can see how it, after you take up expenses and carry, which is actually a percentage of the profits that we get, which is essentially an equity bonus for us, then you can make um, a decent return for your limited partners, in this case, 28 on 10 or a 2.8x to the limited partners, which, by the way, is considered a very good return on a venture fund. On a per-company basis, we're always thinking about the capital required to get the, for them to be, become successful, and you can do that a lot of different ways. So if I'm thinking about a software company, maybe doesn't need a lot of capital, but, but might not get to as big of an endpoint as a telecommunications company or semiconductor company, this would be a typical profile. We might go in and talk to an entrepreneur that's raising a seed round of a half a million dollars and put that money in at, a, at, a, at, at some pre-money value. I'm not going to explain the math here, but essentially what we're doing is we're incrementally putting, putting capital into the company over time. The blue arrows are the, the, the interim, interim periods whereby the company's growing and hopefully we're helping them grow. And then at the end of the day, hopefully, if you don't necessarily need to get to a huge number. It doesn't need to be a billion-dollar company for you to have, you have a large multiple. Even, even the Series B investor in this case makes 5x on their money. And it's driven mainly by lower capital requirements. But you might have another company that looks like this. This would be a typical semiconductor company or systems company. These are similar multiples to the example I gave to the, to the uh, seed and Series A investors. If you put more capital in, over multiple rounds, you need to get to a much larger number. So this is another thing we have in the back of our minds as we're looking at a technology company. What are the capital requirements to become successful? How long is it going to take, as I said before? And how big can the endpoint be? Okay. Feel free to raise your hand and ask me a question. I'm just going to run through this, and you'll be out quickly if you don't ask any questions. So there's your incentive. So what's the process? Um, it's a long process. Uh, first, just to give you a sense on the numbers, we see probably, uh, I think now we see about uh, 1,500 business plans per year. We invest on average in eight. Okay. We take the 15 and we probably take a real close, hard look at somewhere between 200 and 300 of those. Okay. 200 to 300 get a, get a, get a hard look from us. The rest we usually skim the business plan or have a quick conversation with the entrepreneur, maybe you know, just look at the executive summary. Can anyone guess what determines what, how you get into that 200 to 300 bucket? Yeah. Go ahead. Right. So what... what uh, how can you get out of the 1500 bucket into the 200 bucket? Sorry? No, in terms of process, as an entrepreneur, how can you make sure that you get a serious look from a venture capital firm? Okay. Yeah. Executive summary is one thing. The, the beginning of the, the, the first paragraph has to be good. First sentence has to be good. That's one thing. Yeah. Right. So reference, the, the referral system... Is something we ha we depend a lot on because we see so many plans. We don't have the resources to read every word of every business plan that we receive, and it's unfortunate because I'd, I'd like to do that. I actually like reading business plans. I like reading about new technologies, but and I know that people have put a lot of time into writing those business plans, but we don't have enough time to read every word. So we ref we rely on our referral system, which is essentially other service providers in the community that work with entrepreneurs, people like attorneys, accountants. Uh, real estate brokers, people that kind of surround entrepreneurs and help them establish the infrastructure for a company will, will refer deals to us. And since they know us and we've gotten to know them, they, they know what deals are a good fit for us. So they'll send us things that they think are a good fit for us and we'll use that as part of our filter. So we'll take a look at 200 to 300 deals and we'll start them through the process I'm going to describe and they gradually get filtered out as they go through the process. And at the end of the day, like I said, we invest in about eight companies per year. Was there a question? It will. Um, I'll get to that in a second. I'll talk about technology and talk about how important technology is in the grand scheme of things. Okay, that's a good question. So, this process is a long one. Uh, from beginning to end, the time frame varies depending upon the conditions in the market. If it's a highly competitive market or competitive deal, in other words, if there's a lot of venture firms out there that I know I'm competing with to get the deal, 
it's going to compress. So I'm going to compress it. Uh, if if there if I don't think there's a lot of competition, uh, you know, might might go a little bit farther down on the priority scale, and, I'll, and it'll take a little bit longer. I would say right now, three to four months is probably the total time frame you need to be looking at to raise money from a venture fund. And it'll be a series of meetings and due diligence in, in between those meetings. Uh, at the end of the day, a term sheet is actually the outline of the deal. That's the, the terms of the deal that you negotiate, and then lawyers get involved. People often ask me, as an entrepreneur, kind of how you can, other than just generating a lot of competition for your deal, which is the best way to do it, how do you compress this time frame? How can you maybe get information to us faster or better or more efficiently and, and compress that time frame? And usually what I say is, it's not worth doing that because I'm not going to want the process to go too fast. And we'll talk about this in a second. The most important part of an investment, um, the most important part of a business from an evaluation point of view is the management team. Okay? We, we invest in people more than anything else, especially because we invest in really early stage companies. So in a lot of cases, the product isn't even done yet or the technology isn't completely baked. We just have an idea about what it's going to become and we have a guess as to whether or not people are going to buy it. But at the end of the day, we're investing in the people. You can't get to know people in a short period of time. So I'm going to want to get to know the CEO and the rest of the management team. And I'm going to want to have multiple meetings. And I'm going to want to you know, ask them questions, get to know them as a person in addition to as a business person, and then see if there's someone that I would trust giving millions of dollars to to, to, to put to work and, 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 and be able to adapt to the market conditions and, and lead, a, lead a team. So, it's a long period of time because it has to be, in our opinion. If it got less than a month or two, then we wouldn't be really doing our jobs. We wouldn't really be getting to know our teams. Yeah. Influence as to who who's going to be on the team. Yeah. Well, that's that's something that that we like to kind of collaborate with 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 the founders on. So so there might be a CEO, there might be a founding team that that has gaps and we might help them identify those gaps. Uh, in some cases, we'll say, look, given our experience, we think you need to make a change here or here. And again, it's up to the company. If they, if they agree, then we'll help them and work together with them to do that. So we have a network of entrepreneurs and managers that we'll refer in and see if they're the right fit and, and help the team grow. Yeah. How do we evaluate? I'll get to that in a second. Hold that question. It's a good question. Yeah. Um, how do you, uh, if, uh, do you give preference to entrepreneurs with proven track records? Or, yeah. And if so, um, what chances are you young entrepreneurs that never had any kind of track record? I'm going to get to that in a second. I, in fact, it might be the next slide. I forget how my slides are ordered, but these are all good questions. Okay, so I'll get, to, I'll get to the management team questions in a second, but as you can see, it's on the top of the list. Okay, when we look at opportunities, there's no formula, first of all. Okay, I'm not going to give you numerical weights to these things. And I'm not going to give you a checklist or multiple choice, whatever you want to call it, for any of these things. There's a set of kind of qualitative criteria that we look at. In some cases, like the financial section, the market section, we can get a little more quantitative. We do some, do some analysis. But you know, I've never used a spreadsheet to make an investment decision. So management's on top. I'm going to work through each of these categories and, and describe kind of some of the things that we we think are important, at least from an inter-south point of view, and I think they are generally shared across the industry. Um, it'll depend a little bit as if you're a later stage VC versus an early stage VC, you might focus a little bit more uh, as a later stage VC on the financial piece, because at that point you may have already been able to evaluate management teams and technologies in a little more, in a little more depth. Um, I'll get back to, as we go through this, I'll talk about from our, our experience, where, how, you know, what we see as the, as the main reasons why companies are successful or, or why they fail, it usually does come down to the management team. Uh, capitalization can be an issue. Markets can always be an issue because they move around and they, they're a little bit unpredictable. And competition can sometimes bite you when you, when you don't realize, when you, you know, when you aren't expecting it. But management team, at the end of the day, is what determines whether or not you win or lose. So getting back to your question, so how do we, how do we evaluate it? So we'll look for specific, specific things in background, okay, in terms of fit. So we'll look for previous entrepreneurial leadership. Have they been the leader of, a, of and have people on the team been in a startup company before? Have they been successful? Um, I actually like a combination of success and failure myself. Uh, we went through it a period of time over the last few years where um, you know, we'd see some entrepreneurs come to us and say, well, 
I had one really, really big, big successful company. It was a dot-com company. It started in 1999. I sold it in 2000. The investors made 10x. You should invest in me again. And I usually get scared away by people like that because they didn't build a company. They were in the right place at the right time, and that it was smart of them to do that. Um, so you know, got, you know, all the power to them. But in terms of building a company in the current environment, we're thinking you know, we're not going to plan on eyeballs equaling market cap. So entrepreneurial leadership, success and failure is, is a good combination. Completeness and depth, uh, we're looking for the right background, the right position. So VP of business development that's had customer-facing experience, hopefully in that industry. The ability to attract additional talent is something that's often location-based. So you know, sometimes I'll, I've seen really, really interesting companies in the northeast part of Alabama. Is anyone here from Alabama? Um, and and I, you know, I, it's hard for me to imagine getting top talent to come there. So in, the, you know, in, in most, most cases, there are gaps in the team that we need to fill, and we need to feel confident that we can get people recruited to those locations. Um, so relevant experience, I, I mentioned both industry experience and, and, and entrepreneurial experience. Marketing and sales orientation is pretty far down the list, but I personally like, like that. It should be farther up in my mind because... We're looking for a team, and especially a CEO, that has a marketing and sales kind of personality or attitude. At the end of the day, the CEO is the salesperson for the company. That, that CEO needs to be able to stand up in front of a customer or a strategic partner, and eventually up in front of a potential acquirer or a set of investment bankers if they're going public, and sell the company, get everyone excited about the company. Not about making a sale, but excited about what the company's doing and the, and the strategic vision for the company with value that it can create over time. So we, want, we like to have people that have that orientation. And you can kind of tell when someone has that sales orientation. You know, when you talk to them, it's pretty easy to tell um, because there's usually a lot of BS you've got to wade through. Okay? Integrity, you know, is, is last on the list. I mentioned it before. We get to know people over a long period of time. I like to go golfing or do something, play tennis um, with, with pe people we're going to invest in. There's little things that they do that kind of give you a sense of, you know, are they genuine people? Do they really care about other people? You know, do they help me find my lost golf ball? Um, you know, when I hit it in the woods, do they come help find, find it? Um, little things like that. You know, you laugh, but it's, it actually is, is, is interesting to watch. If they just kind of cruise on down the fairway and leave me behind, it says something about their personality, right? So integrity is a big one because we're giving them millions of dollars. There was a uh, famous venture investment in, um, in Ohio. It was, it was made by an Ohio uh, uh, pension fund, actually, it's and, and it's referred to as CoinGate. They invested in a startup company that had their, their business model was to invest in rare coins. And the management, the CEO, took, the, I think it was $15 million and bought a bunch of rare coins and took off with them. $15 million down the drain. Okay. So did I cover the questions on management team from before? Was there something else that you had asked about? Yeah. Yeah. So it's always good to have. Uh, it's a little bit of a catch-22 for young entrepreneurs, right? So the question is, who gives you that first start? My advice is, you know, if you're starting a company and you've never led a company before, let someone else do it and watch them. It's, it's a really hard thing to do to hand over the reins, but as a technology founder, if you don't have management experience and leadership experience, even in a small company, it, it's hard to do. And, and I think that the, the, the best thing longer term is to hand over the reins, but make a deal with the investors and the CEO that, that you're going to learn th from that process, and you're going to gradually get more and more responsibility in the organization so that the next time you do it, you can make the case, yeah, I should be able to step up to that role. But we've, we've not invested in a lot of companies because we, didn't, we, we, we were convinced that the technology founder wouldn't give up control of the company. It's a big, big problem. Yeah? I have a question. When the small companies grow up, on different stages, they have to focus. Early stage, when you focus on hard and the later stage, you focus on finance or marketing or finance, their new clients, or go to IPO. Do you prefer to change the management team along the way? Or it depends. So the question is, do, do, you, do you change, kind of um, modify management teams along the way based on the progress of the company, stage of the company? It's a good question. The, the, we, we, we usually will. 
uh, we usually, it's, it's rare that you find um, leaders that are able to kind of span the spectrum of, of size from a five-person organization to a 500-person organization. Uh, there are some out there. And there are some very notable ones here in RTP, in fact. But I would say that there's usually a transition point. And it's usually, um, it's, a, it's a combination of us figuring out through performance, but it's often that person saying, you know, I like, I like the entrepreneurial thing. I like being able to move fast and do things easily and not have meetings all day. I don't want to be the CEO of a 500-person company. And they kind of give over the reins and make the transition themselves. So it's, it's usually a pretty obvious thing. And, and the, the, the real entrepreneurial leaders will want to go back and find another company that's 10 people and, and be a part of that environment. Is there another question? Yeah. Say it again, someone who's, who has five to six years of experience? Okay. How would I evaluate that person? Okay, so if they have maybe experience in a larger company, a larger technology company, that, that, that's obviously a positive thing. The question is, you know, what kind of experience did they get? Did they get good customer-facing experience, understanding markets and, and competitive landscape? Did they develop a network of contacts within the industry? And if they're really, really strong on the industry side, and then I might just make sure that they're surrounded on their team with people that know how to manage small companies. But that, that certainly could be a, a positive thing. I'm not, you know, the fact that they've worked in a large company means usually, usually they've gotten some reasonably good experience. I, that's the way I started out. I did it for a couple of years, got what I could out of it, and then, and then left, and I, I wouldn't go back. Yeah. You guys like have a point where if somebody's worked in a large company and never done anything entrepreneurial for a certain length of time, like if they've been doing it for 20 years, do you guys ever look at that person and say, you know, really be critical of their entrepreneurial ability? I think subconsciously we do. It's probably not fair. But um, it, I think it does, it, it, it does, it's human nature that you work in a big company for a long, long period of time. You've got to get used to ways of doing things. And unless you're a real free thinker, independent thinker, you get, in, you get into kind of a mode that just doesn't work in startup company environments. So um, you know, we have a lot of big com good big companies around here in the RTP area, but we've certainly seen um, a lot of very successful executives come out of those environments and just not be able to adjust to you know, small company. What the main thing is that it, you know, true startup companies initially are not hierarchical. So you know, you're the CEO, you could be changing the toilet paper in the toilet. Uh, you, could be, you, know, you could be writing code. I mean, you, there's a lot of things you're going to have to do and you, change, you wear different hats. And people in big companies have a hard time adjusting to that. Um, does that answer your question? Okay. Any other questions on the management side? This is the, it, we'll come back to this if we have time at the end. This is where we spend most of our time. And at the end of the day, um, I, you know, one of the great things about my job is that I get to interact with entrepreneurs every day. And they want to change the world. They're high energy, and I can feed off of that. That's Probably that's that's the main enjoyment of being a venture capitalist. So financial drivers, um, I actually help teach a course and spend multiple lectures talking about deal structures and terms and all that. I'm not going to go into that here, but needless to say, you know, since we are financial investors, we need to be able to do the math, like I showed you before, and see how you add a little bit of money to a company, envision how it's going to grow, put a little bit more money in envision how it's going to grow and then get to an endpoint. So you do a lot of analysis on deal structure to make sure that you can make that multiple, you know, that, that fits into our fund strategy. A lot of companies that we look at are great companies with great management teams, but they just don't scale well. They, for example, take too much capital to grow or they only scale with people if they're more of a service-related business. And because we don't see that, that accelerated growth potential, we won't invest in them. Uh, and, and that's disappointing to me a lot of cases because they, 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 are, they look like great businesses, the kind of businesses that you know, I, I might even want to be working for, but they just don't fit into that kind of venture capital model. And uh, there, is, there are some gaps in, in our capital markets where companies like that, you know, if you wanted to go um, start a dry cleaning business, you, know, you might be able to find a great technology even that allows you to kind of compete against other dry cleaners and you might be able to find a location that's underserved. You might be able to give me an argument that you're going to make a lot of money, but it's generally not going to be a venture capital type of deal because it can't get big enough for me to make 
you know, 8, 10, 20x on a few million dollars. Okay. Um, market drivers. The, the, you always hear venture capitalists want to invest in big markets. It's true. We, we do a lot of analysis on how big we think the markets can be. Well, big, one of the mistakes that entrepreneurs make is they, uh, they bring market research reports, and they, they try to convince me that there's a big market because Gartner says there is. And, and they'll just throw that in front of me and say, well, you know, it's a $2 billion market, and we're going to get 2% market share and have a big company. The, uh, if, if you have a Gartner report that says how big your market is, then your value proposition, the product or service that you're inventing, must not be unique. If there's already a market defined for it by someone else, then it must not be unique. Okay? If, it's a, if it's a truly unique product or service, different from everything else that's out there, and hopefully is going to be out there for a while, you should have to build it from the bottom up and say, here's the value proposition I'm going to bring to these sets of customers. Here's a reasonable price point. Here's a reasonable volume based on the number of customers that are out there and the value I can bring to them and build up what you think the market size can be. And you can triangulate a little bit using other reports that are close, right? using other reports of other products that you would maybe consider previous generation products and the market size for those products. So we'll, use, we'll spend a lot of time with, working with the entrepreneurs to help build up those markets and do some independent research ourselves. Um, and then we'll look at the business model and, and make sure that there's a reasonable way to get to these customers and to build a business um, that generates revenue from those customers. So looking at partners, uh, channel partners, strategic partners, technology partners, trying to figure out how you get to a market in an efficient way. The, one of the toughest decisions that most technology companies have at an early age is, do I go direct and spend a lot of money trying to generate customers directly, or do I find a big partner that already has a big sales and marketing infrastructure and give them a piece of the action and, and get customers maybe faster and cheaper that way? Um, it's, it's tough. You, from, what, from what I've seen, you know, balance is the best way to go. You always want to have a direct sales capability because you always want to be touching the customer. At an early stage of development, you want, to be, you want to be in touch with what the customer wants and needs. You want to be able to modify your product development strategy so you're better serving their, their needs um, and understanding you know, how to, how to um, adapt to them. But then at the same time, you can't, you can't expect to scale a small company with direct sales force, so you often will, will partner with someone, on a, uh, a, you know, a bigger company, and give them a cut of the action in the sales. So you, you generally want to balance it. And then over the longer term, you'll morph one way or the other, or there'll be a mix. And you, you have to, the, the, one of the hardest things is to ma manage the conflict there. If you have a direct sales force, you need to be careful that you know, they're not selling to the same people that maybe one of your strategic partners is selling to. So we'll look at how you get there, the sales uh, marketing strategy, and, and then competition. Uh, the barriers to entry is a really important one. Um, the way I like to call, I like to call it competitive, sustainable competitive advantage, which is you know, the basis for competition in the long term. And this can be technology driven. So you know, we will look at patents uh, and IP around a particular product. Uh, but generally, we don't consider patents to be a great barrier to entry, especially if you're a small company. Uh, it, they're, they're nice to have, and at the end of the day, as you grow bigger, they'll get more valuable because strategic buyers will be able to do, do more with them than you can because larger companies can be offensive with patents. They can go out and say, hey, wait a minute, you're, you're infringing on our patent. You know, we're going to notify you, and then we're going to bring legal action if, if you don't stop. As a small company, you don't have the money to do that. So having patents as a small company is generally not, you can't, they can't be used offensively. They can use, be, be used defensively to make sure that you know, you're, you've, got, you've got the ability to go ahead and practice um, and, 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 use it and, and build a technology without worrying about other people having you know, rights to that technology. But in, at an early stage, it's not a good basis. What we like to see is something that's just really hard to make. Right, an idea that was that is protected, that was hard to come up with, smart people that took that took a long time to build it, um, and 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 with a capability or an expertise that is really hard to find anywhere else. There's other ways to create a competitive uh, advantage. You can build a brand, you can build a market position uh, in a particular market. 
different venture funds have their different have, have different uh, ideas about kind of what they're comfortable with. At InterSouth, we like proprietary technology, so we generally stay away from things like things like companies that build are building consumer product that they need to build a brand around or. Um, some kind of market position, like, like a first mover advantage that would get you in a position where you can maybe try to create high switching costs so customers, once they sign up with you, have a hard time switching. That's, that's reasonable competitive advantage, but we, ge we generally like to see the technology as the underlying basis. Yeah. I wanted to ask, uh, before commercialization, how many of the companies you look at, sort of portfolio companies or candidates to be portfolio companies, how many of them do rigorous market research in the sense of testing or experimenting with customers, the testing right. assumptions in their models. Right. So the question is, how many of these really young companies do, do true market research, right? Uh, true market research is, takes a lot of money and a lot of time. So you know, usually you can't do that. But hopefully if you've got people on your team with industry experience, they'll get a lot of anecdotal information. So you know, conversations with people that they know. And we'll, we'll do that too. We'll go out and do a version of market research ourselves. We won't be exhaustive. Um, but we will go out and talk to people in the industry and actually, you know, in a sense, survey people that are out there. Um, we, we, you'll see some companies that, that maybe have more capital um, do some formal market research, uh, but we'll always want to validate that ourselves with some, some specific uh, expertise that we can find within our network. Yeah? Yeah, so the question is, there, there are always competing technologies, competing solutions, and how do we kind of assess them? Well, well, we'll talk to people in the market. We'll talk to potential customers. And if the company doesn't get those in touch with some, then, then we'll find them ourselves. And we'll say, hey, hey you know, what, what if I put these two things in front of you? What would drive your, your buying decision? What would be more important to you? You know, is one really differentiated in your mind? And see what they say. So we'll, we'll, we'll do comparisons ourselves. Um, and and, and sometimes, sometimes that's hard because you can't, we can't always divulge everything about the company, right? We can't go out and be advertising about a new technology because we're, we're very, very careful about information flow uh, and confidentiality with regard to the business plans and ideas. So you kind of have to sometimes just beat around the bush a little bit and say, well, what if someone did something like this? You know, would that be valuable to you? How much would you pay for that? And do some research. It's a very hard thing to do, though, especially if there's competitive solutions that are entrenched. Because a lot of times you'll go to a customer, a potential customer, and say, you know, would you get rid of this solution and buy this new one? And they'll say, well, the new one actually looks pretty good and looks better, but I've been using this for five years and everyone knows how to use it and it's already installed on my server and, you know, I, I don't really feel like switching right now. So, you know, how, you know, you can probably beat on that account a little bit more and get them to switch eventually, but it's going to take, take a little bit longer. Yeah, so the question is, you know, expectations about exits and timing, right? Um, that's definitely going to be an issue if we don't establish some kind of assumption up front. Okay, so, so whenever we go into an investment, we need to get liquid at some point. We're a venture investor. We need to buy private stock. We need that to be liquid at some point. It, our, our venture fund actually has a 10-year, normally has a 10-year legal lifetime. So there's, there's a hard cap right there. But we normally want to see, you know, somewhere in the five, six, seven-year time frame of getting to an exit point. And the question is, you know, what if, so let's say we establish up front that that's the goal. And then along the way, you might have differences of opinion with the management team and the investors, okay? And what we'll, what we'll first try to do is set up the incentive, uh, the compensation packages to incentivize the management team to go ahead and exit within a certain period of time. One of the ways to do that is options or equity that obviously doesn't, doesn't get converted into cash unless the, until they exit. And their, their, their salary and bonus Will likely be at lower, would be low, will be below market levels for that person, but will compensate with options or equity that, that will you know, kick that up in aggregate once they exit. So we'll try to align the incentives. We'll also put things in the, in the, in the deal. So we'll put legal terms that will actually allow us, in certain cases, to force an exit. Now, I don't think we've actually ever done that because we. We make it clear up front what the expectations are and the management teams understand what the expectations are and everyone is kind of driving towards an exit. 
um, but we do have an out uh, and, and we can force an exit or force a dividend or some kind of redemption on the shares we have after a certain period of time. No, we definitely do not have the upper hand because we don't run the companies, right? So if I go to um, a CEO and say, I, th I think we should exit now. I want you to go talk to this potential acquirer and, and talk to him about an exit. And let's say that that CEO does not want to exit. How do you think that conversation is going to go? Do you think we're going to sell the company? Do you think that acquirer is going to want to buy the company after talking to the CEO that doesn't want to sell it? It's not going to happen. So you've got to, you've got to, there's got to be other ways to motivate. So I'm not in control. I can legally take control, but that gets ugly because now I can say, okay, well, I'm going to force an exit. I still got to get the, remember the, the CEO, the salesperson of the organization, I've got to get that person up in front of an acquirer and get them to get excited about a value, a value that I want. Right? Yep. Well, in those, in those circumstances, I would never force an exit, right? Because that, that would be a horrible time to exit. The, there's, there, in our experience, we've seen kind of how value gets created over time. And if your technology is not ready and the market's just starting to take off, then we're not going to want to exit, right? Um, but it's a discussion we're going to have with the management team, with the board. Um, you know, it, it's, I think a misconception about venture capital is that we're adversaries with the entrepreneurs we invest in. The way we set up boards and the way we set up our deals is all designed to get us thinking in the same way. So when I make an investment in a company and I serve on a board, I'm a board member along with the CEO. We're both, both board members. We're two votes of many around the table. And, we are, and the group is going to discuss you know, what's the right time to exit, what feels like the right time to exit. And in that circumstance, I'd be surprised if anybody around the table voted to exit. And you know, this, like I said before, truly entrepreneurial managers want to get to an exit, make a lot of money, and then go back and do it again. They don't want to be kind of bumping along, you know, with a you know, little bit of growth here and there, or you know, generating a little bit of cash, paying out dividends, making a salary. They, they're not, they actually don't want to be doing that, usually. How much time do I have? OK. Any other questions? All right, I'll keep pushing forward. So product and technology, we talked about this. Um, we look at the stage of development of technology mainly because we just want to understand what the challenges are going forward and what the, what the time frame is going to be. It goes to kind of how long it's going to take to get to an exit. If, we, if you tell me that um, the technology is going to take 10 years to develop before it's a product, that's a problem. Um, it, I, we, we like to see some kind of um, effort being put into the development before we invest to prove that you know there's a there's a that at least what you've done so far um, you know, shows that the development team has capability uh, and shows that you have the ability to, to to at least build some kind of technology. But we'll we'll usually invest pre-product, and we'll usually invest before um, there's any there's substantial revenue. So we look at the technology pretty deeply and try to get comfortable with how much money it's going to take to get to a product over time. Um, I talked about the IP tech protection before, so I won't I won't go into that again. We'll often do uh, intellectual property reviews if there's a significant part of the company that uh, set of assets around IP. We'll often hire our own independent counsel to evaluate the strength of that IP. But we'll ma the main purpose of that review would be to make sure that we have a freedom, a freedom to operate. So it's mainly just to make sure that no one else out there has similar IP or IP surrounding us that will you know, prevent us from expanding the types of products we want to build. So it's more, again, more of a more of a, uh, a defensive thing to make sure that we can do what we want to do as opposed to go out and sue people for infringing. Okay. So just, these are just general categories. Uh, since we invest in life science companies, the regulatory drivers are significant. Uh, there's this group called the FDA, and they can be a little bit of a bothersome group. Um, they, you know, there's a, you have to go through a process, and and there are a lot there, there's there's a there's timelines associated with that, and it cha it, it it can change uh, depending upon the rules and regulations that they have in place, and hopefully over time they'll get more efficient the way they do things. But if you're developing a drug, you have to go through a process. We understand that you have to make sure it 
It's not going to kill people before you sell it. Um, so you, you have to think about what those timelines are, and that's closely related to capital requirements. For a life science company, uh, you can invest a lot of money in a company before you get to an exit. We've got some life science companies that have raised $80, $90 million and have not exited yet. And we still think they're going to be a great investment because we think that you know, they've got half a billion, billion dollar potential if the drugs that they're developing work. And hopefully they will, or at least a few of them will. Uh, and then economic drivers, you know, we'll, we'll often kind of step back and take a look at some of the macro trends within the economy and, and understand kind of how the technology and company we're looking at fits into those trends. Um, but that's, I would say, less, less of an issue now. Uh, it, it was an issue back you know, when we, we uh, were in an environment after the bubble burst where the exit markets were, were tough and there were only certain things that you could really reasonably get to an exit point. So we, uh, we think about those. So, yeah, so the question is, you know, does a herd mentality, does, does what other people are doing influence kind of what we do, right? And, uh, right, right. Well, there's two sides to that argument. I think people always ask me, John, what are the, what are the great, what are the hot technology sectors? What are you investing in? You know? And um, they think because I have a technology background, I know. Bottom line, I mean, I've been in venture capital for eight years, so I'm not a, I'm not a technology expert. You're either, you either, either have a lot of experience in venture capital or in technology. You can't have both, right? So, so I just tell them, well, here's what I'm seeing entrepreneurs show me. Here's the business plans I'm seeing out there, and here are the ones that I see them to see. Here's the ones I see the, the smart people seem, seeming to align with. And, and those are the ones that I'm more, in, more interested in as opposed to, you know, nanotechnology two years ago or clean tech now, which is just a buzzword, right? Um, now, the, the flip side is, you know, if you look at someone, um, an venture investor back in, 98, 1998, who invested in an internet company because a bunch of other people were, they made a lot of money, and you can't argue against that, right? They made a lot of money because everybody else seemed to think that that was a good thing to invest in all the way through to the, through to the public markets. And a whole bunch of money was spent and invested and used to acquire those things, and a bunch of venture capitalists made a lot of money. You can't, I can't say that that, that was wrong, right? I, that, that was the, 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 we actually have a pretty pure goal as a venture capital firm. I mean, I, I'd like to think that we're involved in our community, and we help our community grow, and we help entrepreneurs. But my customers want me to do one thing, and that is make them money now and in the long term. So it's a relatively pure goal that I have. And if others are successful doing that, I can't say it's wrong. Any other questions? I think that's it. Any other questions? So, so the, yeah. Well, the cost of capital for the entrepreneur is high because we're generally going to, you know, we're going to require a significant return on, on the money that we, that we invest, right? So we're going to, we need to get a significant percentage of the company. Are you asking once we're in the company? No, I, I asked so, um, for, for your uh, for, for this uh, record capital, um, because you guys are in a risky industry, mm -hmm. and suppose that your outside should be at some level associated with the high risk. So when you guys raising the capital, mm -hmm. what kind of an instrument you are looking for because in terms of um, how to lower the, the cost of capital? Well, we'll what we'll do is we'll, we'll get a commitment. We'll actually raise a fund, right? So we'll go to an institutional investor and we'll say, you know, give, give us, you know, $20 million and we'll put it into this fund that we have and we're going to gradually put it to work. And we won't, we won't actually, they won't actually give us the $20 million when we close the fund. They'll, give, they'll commit to give it to us on an as-needed basis. Okay, so that, that's a good question. We don't actually, it's not like we, we put the money into the bank and, and, you know, and, and then, and then you know, do something with it before we put it to work. We'll actually wait, and when we make an investment, 
will either an initial investment in a company or a follow-on financing in an existing company will actually will do a capital call and we'll go ahead and ask the investors, okay, now we need a little bit of, of what you committed. Okay, now we need a little bit more. And at the end of the day, we'll, you know, you'll, be, you'll, you'll, you'll have mailed us your 20, or wired us your $20 million, usually over a five to seven year period. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. The question is private investors or individual investors, you know, wealthy individuals, can they invest in, in a venture fund? Um, when, we, when we started out, when InterSouth was young, uh, most of the money we had, or a good, a good portion of the money we had was from individual investors. And uh, what normally happens and what happened in InterSouth is over time, it's, as you get bigger and bigger, it's, it's, it becomes impossible to manage you know, a whole bunch of individual investors because they're normally not uh, investing a large amount uh, each. So you'll normally see a transition to, to institutional and uh, I think in our latest fund, we're almost all institutional investors. But if you look back in our you know, second, third, fourth funds, even our fifth fund, there were a significant number of individuals. What, what we've done, had to do recently, is put a minimum on, on the investment in our funds. We, we can't be you know, managing, uh, you know, raise a $275 million fund and have 275 different investors each investing a million dollars. From an administrative and logistics point of view, it's impossible for us to manage. And I'm just curious, how many people are on this team or on this committee who decide um, to see this 200 plans or then put it mm -hmm. down to or? Yeah, we have, we've got a set of investment professionals right now at InterSouth and we have uh, 12. And some of us are more active out in the community, kind of looking for deals, kind of tasked with going out to find good investment opportunities. And I would say it's probably you know, five or six of us right now. So they're all from different backgrounds? Or? Yeah, well, our team has a lot of different backgrounds. So some of us have technology backgrounds, some of us have banking or accounting backgrounds, some entrepreneurial uh, operational experience. So we have, we have, a, we have a mix on our team. And, and, but we will, we'll discuss any deal that gets referred in will normally get discussed as a group. We'll do some filtering as individuals, <coughs> but that's only if the answer is obvious. If there's a question, if we think there's, you know, a diamond in the rough, or there's something there that, that we think could be the basis for an investment, we'll bring it before the larger group and we'll all discuss it. So, you know, we're, 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 we're almost never making decisions in a vacuum. And, and my, you know, that, another reason why I love my job is because I've got a bunch of really smart partners and I can sit around the table and I can ask for their help when I'm making a decision. Because, you know, it's a lot of stress if you ask me to buy myself making a $10 million investment decision. Yeah, right there. Yeah, I think the, the technology development is nice, but the market understanding is more important. So, you know, if, if you've done something that can, it can show me that you've kind of tested the value proposition, maybe even just hypothetically with a set of potential customers or partners, and you've gotten good feedback, and those people maybe are willing to attest to that and talk to me about it, that's, more, that, that's pretty valuable stuff. If you, don't, if you haven't done that, then I, then I have to do that. And again, you know, t time is an issue for me. Uh, I'd rather not have to do that. If, if all else being equal, I'm going to take the entrepreneur that's already done that work for me and, 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 and maybe do a little bit of independent val validation. In some cases where I think the idea seems really great and the market seems really big, I'll, I'll actually work with them to do that. But the more, the more kind of anecdotal market understanding you can get, the better you're going to be when you get in front of me. Because most of the questions, it, it, I do it in, in a part of another talk, I talk about how best to present an idea to venture capitalists. And you know, there's a lot of ways you present things. You, you have written documents, you have a business plan normally, executive summary, financials, and then you have, you have slides usually using in presentation. And the biggest mistake I find entrepreneurs make is that 75% of the presentation is technical. You know, here's my product. I, I invented this product and I want to show you everything about this product because there's a sense of ownership and pride and that's great, but I'm going to want to get past that pretty quickly. In the first meeting, I'm going to give you the, I'm going to give you the technology. I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to assume you're going to make exactly what you say you're going to make and there aren't going to be too many problems along the way 
and you're going to spend as much money as you think you're going to spend to make it. Okay, I give you that. Now let's talk about who's going to buy it. Let's talk about how you're going to get to those people, how much they're going to pay for it, and, build a, and how, how can you build an organization around that business. So the, you know, I think the communication, most people err too much on the technology and the product as opposed to the management team and the market and the customers. Yeah? Can you speak up? I see all different kinds of backgrounds in, in, in this industry. So it, there's definitely no template that I think um, is the best template. I think that, um, but, but I do, I think I have a bias towards two, two backgrounds. One is related to mine, not exactly, but related to mine. Um, and one, the, the, the other is, is something I have no background in, and, and I, I get that from my other partners. I think operational experience in startup companies, in early stage private companies, is highly, highly valuable to do what I do because I need to, I'm, I always try and understand what's it like in those companies, what, you know, what, what's going to determine whether or not they're successful and actually living it and breathing it I think is the best thing you can do. So I always tell people who are interested in getting in venture capital, you should always be trying to get in because it's a small industry and there's not a lot of positions available and it's all about timing so you kind of always have to be working it so to speak. But in parallel I say try to find positions in startup companies where you can get more and more responsibility, maybe get into a leadership position, understand what, you know, what makes them successful. I think that's a big thing. In terms of, you know, my background is, is kind of the technology and consulting background, which has been helpful for me because I feel comfortable <laughs> in the analytical side of what I do. So I feel comfortable that I can tear apart a market, understand a technology, stack it up against a competitive technology. I feel comfortable doing that because of my background. But I've never been in a, I've never worked in a startup company, so you know it's it's harder for me to to look at a CEO and say you know can she be successful? Is she really going to be able to grow the organization? And and you know because I've never done it before, and I that's why I have other people on my team I rely on to to help me make that that assessment. In terms of the MBA, I, I don't know. I mean I have an MBA and it was it was a great two years and a lot of fun. Um, but I, I, I don't think you need a, a name brand MBA. I mean, I think in certain industries, you kind of need it. It's kind of a ticket to get in the door, to get, just to, to get an interview some places. And, 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 and some industries, some companies will use MBA degrees as a filter, and they'll say, look, I'm going to let the guys at Harvard do the filtering on their applications, and I'm just going to interview people from Harvard and whatever. So, but in terms of entrepreneurial activities and VCs, I don't think MBAs are really that important. Yeah, that's a whole class. I mean, I could talk for a couple hours on how we get to a value. Excuse me. How we get to, how we, you know, there's a negotiation that happens. And I have to have some basis in my mind for what I'm willing to do, what value I'm willing to give uh, for the stock that I'm buying. And there's a lot of things that go into it. Uh, you know, I need to be able to, if you look at, remember the chart, you know, working from the, from the back, um, working from the end, the end point backwards, you can sometimes work, you can say, okay, I, I've, I'm interested in a company. I look at their financial projections. I look out five years, six years. I maybe discount their revenue a little bit. I apply a comp that I think, think is reasonable in the market. I come up with an endpoint that I think is reasonable that they're going to get to. I know how much capital they're going to raise along the way and how it's incrementally going to get built up. And I'll work my way backwards <coughs> to a pre-money value that gets me 10x. Okay? So one way is to just kind of work backwards from an endpoint that you think is reasonable. Um, We'll look at the post money value in the last round and make and see if the you know and, see, and justify an, an increment from that, uh, positive or negative. Uh, but I think the biggest determiner termination of value is just the market. It's the supply and demand of venture capital out there. And, and over the last ten years, we've seen wild fluctuations. Now it's a little, it's pretty. It's I think it's it's more more normal, which is nice. But you know if I if, if I had situ, situate a lot of situations, um, you know after after the internet bubble burst companies would come around and they want to raise money and I would be the only investor that was interested in investing. So what's the market price? There is no market. It's just me. 
or inner south, right? So in those situations, you gotta figure out something else that's fair. Now, at the end of the day, you could say in that situation, I can completely take advantage of the entrepreneur and say, you know, I want 90% of your company. You have no other choice, so take it or leave it. If I do that, and the company's successful, and I make boatloads of the money, and the entrepreneur doesn't, are they gonna come back and want me to invest in their second company and their third company? No. So isn't, I have no, if I'm a long-term investor in this region, which I am, then I'm, I, I, it's not a good idea to screw over entrepreneurs. I'd be worried about people that come here and do one-off deals, and no, they don't because they're not as, as concerned about relationships over the long term. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so it, our, our, since our strategy is specifically focused on the southeast, we, are, we, we don't invest in any foreign country, let alone an emerging market. Um, other, other venture funds that are bigger will have uh, more flexibility in their strategy. But it's not only something that we want to, want to do, but focusing in the southeast is something we actually promised our investors. So when we raised the fund, we said we are going to do early stage deals in life science and technology in the southeast. And we can't go, go too far outside of that box. If we start doing investments in India, they'll get a little upset with us. But there are other venture funds that are going there and making investments there. We find the biggest impact on our, our, in, in our business is not you know, the fact that other VCs are investing overseas. It's that our companies are doing business overseas, are operating with assets overseas, are using resources in emerging economies and using, and, and using that as a way to be more successful. We're seeing that across our portfolio. And with that, therefore, we need to understand the dynamics of those markets. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. Sure. Uh,